Uh, good morning, everybody. I am glad that you've chosen to be here today, and we're going to wrap up this three-part series we've been in called Practice, Not Perfection, where we've been looking at three spiritual practices that the Bible promises us if we make them a consistent part of our life, it will help us grow in our faith, in our relationship with God. And so this morning, we're going to dig into the practice of generosity. It was only through generosity that the early church even survived. Within weeks of the first gospel message on the day of Pentecost delivered by Peter, within we- Peter, within weeks of that, there were more than 10,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem. We know that because the Bible says there were 5,000 men, and so you add in the women and uh, the children, and you add that all together, the first megachurch was born within weeks of that first message. And while that was fantastic news that the gospel was spreading so quickly, it presented some problems. Many of these new believers had come great distances to Jerusalem specifically to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. It was one of three pilgrimage feasts in the Jewish calendar, three times a year that no matter where you lived, you tried to make it to Jerusalem to celebrate in the holy city. They came for the Feast of Pentecost, and when they heard Peter's message about God's love and grace available through Jesus, Their lives were forever changed. They accepted Christ, and they stayed longer than they had planned, I think in part to get grounded in their faith, but also because what was happening was just so exciting. However, that created the problems. These individuals had packed for a long journey, a stay in Jerusalem, but not this long of a stay. And as the days turned into weeks, they began to run out of food and money, and places to stay. And so they turned to their fellow believers in this new church and sought help, and this amazing thing happened. Acts 4 tells us that all the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own. And so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord's Jesus, and God's great blessing was on all the church. And then this amazing sentence tucked in here. There were no needy people among them. Because those who owned land or houses, when they saw the need, they'd sell them and bring the money to the apostles so they could distribute it to people who were in need. I don't know where you are in this whole practice of generosity this morning, but I can safely say for most of us, we've not hit that level. Where we've sold a home and given the money or sold a piece of land or given away grandma's wedding ring and taken the cash and I mean now grandma's gone I'm assuming in that but you didn't steal it off her finger hock it and give the money to the church that's not acceptable but we're not there right we need to grow what would it look like if we became that generous how would it change our hearts how would it change our daily choices And what kind of an impact could we have in this community if each one of us took one simple step towards practicing generosity? So I'm convinced that the first church, those early days of the church, was that generous primarily because they grew up in their church, in their schools, in their Jewish synagogue schools, and in the synagogue where they went to church in their family, they were taught the Old Testament principles 
about generosity. They grew up believing generosity is not about what we have as much as it is about how we think about what we have. That was the attitude they expressed in that early part of Acts chapter 4 when Paul says these new believers felt like whatever they owned was not their own. That was no accident. These people grew up in a system that taught them the Bible and its concept of generosity. They grew up memorizing passages like this. First Chronicles 29 that says, Everything comes from you, God, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Or Proverbs uh, 20, or Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. They grew up with this solid bias in their faith about being generous. Now, that may not have been true for the family that you grew up in or the culture you grew up in. It's not true for a lot of us. So when we come to Jesus, it takes a while to adjust our beliefs, our values, our practices to come in line with what Jesus teaches about living a generous life. Even if you grew up in a Christian family, you may not have gotten these values. I mean, my family was generous about a few things. But we didn't talk about this general, overarching principle of being generous with our lives. So it took me a long time to grow in this. It took a lot of help from my wife, who is a naturally generous, giving person. And I still have to work on being generous when it looks like things are growing scarce. Practicing generosity starts with that. It just starts with adopting a new value to live by. Everything I have comes from God, and it's his to use as he pleases. Paul actually taught this concept to some new believers in the city of Corinth. In his letter to them, he said, Look, now, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food, he's talking about God, and it doesn't strike us the way it would have then because most of us are not farmers. In fact, I only know one farmer in the room this morning. Okay, So we don't get that generally when Paul says it, but they didn't have like seed corn and regular corn that you would use and grind up and use in cooking. They had one supply of corn. They had one supply of wheat or barley or whatever it was they were going to grow. And when you dip into that bag to feed your family, you're also dipping into your resources potentially for seed for the crop for the next fall. And so Paul says, look, the same God who supplies everything that's in your stores, whether you're using it for seed or for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. In Paul's day, farmers used two basic methods to plant seeds. The first was time-consuming and tedious. They would take individual seeds and place them the right distance apart, press them into the soil, cover them by hand with the dirt. It was a method of planting you use when your reserves are starting to run out. It's a method of planting you use because every seed has to germinate. You use it because you're facing tough choices because this may be your last harvest. Do I plant Seeds, do I feed my family? 
The more the other method was to sow the the seed. It may be something you're familiar with seeing in pictures, either in your Bible or online, of of someone just reaching into a bucket or having a bag slung over their shoulder, and then they just take their hand and they put a pile of seed in it and they broadcast, sow it on the ground. It's a much more generous way to plant seed. It has the potential to yield a greater harvest for the one who's growing the seed. But it's also a risky way to plant because not all those seeds are going to germinate. The farmer in this situation, Paul is saying, the one who sows generously is trusting God. That what he puts in the ground on the front end is going to yield a great harvest on the back end of the deal. Through this imagery, Paul is encouraging us to just not just trust God to supply what we need, but to supply more than we need. And he says, if you do that, watch and see God is going to supply enough that you can be generous on every occasion as you practice generosity. Now, it can be tough to practice this, right? Our common sense fights against it. So conventional wisdom says, if I have money in my hand, and I brought some this morning, I robbed it from Connie's purse. Um, so I have up here 20, 40, 60, 80, 1, 20, 40, 60, 80, 200 dollars. Okay? So if I decide I'm going to give one of these away this morning, if I take 120 and give it away, how much do I have left? It's not a trick question. This is the 11 o'clock crowd. You've had all the caffeine you need. This is not a trick question. If I give away 20 from 200, I have... Thank you. Welcome to the service. We're glad you're here this morning. All right. If I don't give that 20 away, how much do I have? $200. Which is greater, $180 or $200? You sounded doubtful. It's $200, right? So if I'm going to be generous, if I'm going to give away 20 bucks, I'm going to sustain a loss. That's the way, logically, we can look at this. And I understand that. It's human nature to think that being generous requires a loss. We're going to lose time. We're going to lose attention. We're going to lose money. We're going to lose something if we give it away that we could have invested in a different way in our life. It requires us to lose to be generous. Or does it? I ran across an interesting book this week. Confession, I ran across it Thursday morning. The book is uh, The Paradox of Generosity by Christian Smith. He is a sociologist at Notre Dame. And uh, because I ran across it so late, I didn't have time to read the whole book, but I, so I did what any student would do today. I read book summaries online. It's a good thing to do, but I just wanted to confess that to you. But in what I've read about this book, there is no evidence that Christian Smith or his co-author have any faith in God or Christianity at this point. He approached this research purely as a secular sociologist. Regarding this simple idea that being generous requires us to accept the loss, he writes, not so. Not at all. In fact, the reality of generosity is actually paradoxical. Rather than generosity producing net losses, in general, the more generously people give of themselves, the more of many goods they receive in return. Sometimes they receive more of the same kind of thing that they gave, money, time, attention, and so forth. But often, 
And more importantly, generous people tend to receive back goods that are even more valuable than what they gave. Happiness, health, a sense of purpose in life, and personal growth. Generosity does not require us to sustain a loss. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When I read that, I was immediately reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 16 when he says, For whoever, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me is going to find it. The Bible is really clear about the blessings, the benefits, and the, the responsibility we have to live generously. But to hear it from two secular sociologists, to see the statistical data behind it that backs up what the Bible has always taught was not just affirming, but to be honest, it was shocking that anybody would dig into the research that far in the idea of generosity. Letting go of some of what we own makes our lives better. By giving ourselves away, we actually move toward the rich, full life that Jesus has promised us. But before you can move that way, you've got to get comfortable with the paradox. When we give, we receive. When we grasp, we lose. The Bible paints this paradox this way multiple places. Proverbs 11 says, So one man gives freely and yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And the reverse is also true. If we hold tightly to the stuff of this life, even if it's holding on to resources to protect ourselves for some kind of future calamity or future uncertainty, It has a profound impact on our life, our health, our relationships. Grasping makes us more anxious about the future instead of giving us more confidence. Grasping makes us more vulnerable, the research shows, to future misfortunes. And in short, by not caring well for others, we don't take care of ourselves. So whether it's giving money or volunteer hours or acts of kindness, generosity directly coincides with happiness, good health, the avoidance of depression, a sense of purpose in life, and personal growth. It's a biblical fact. It is a sociological fact proven by empirical data. Moving, though, from from grasping to generosity is going to take more of us than we think. It's going to take consistent practices, not just random acts of kindness. We can't view this now as our new investment portfolio goal, right? We can't go into it saying, God, I'm going to give that 20. I expect you to replace it. And then that's not the way this works. We can't have the motive of our generosity be the return. Generosity that's faked To gain some other more valued self-serving end doesn't produce the same result. Generosity itself is what has to be desired. And the good of other people must be what we want. Let me just uh, tell you the most generous thing I have seen in the last year. About a year ago, um, my wife came home with this amazing, she was just beaming from ear to ear. She works at a free and charitable health clinic in St. Charles. 
they survive and they help people as a clinic based on private grants and private donations. They don't accept government funds. They're completely donation-based. She came home and she said they were surprised out of the blue that day with a call from a group that was giving the organization $10,000. She was stunned, elated. It was incredible. Turns out it was given by a group in St. Charles called the 100 Women Who Care. Four times every year, every one of the 100 people in that group donate at least $100. And together as a group, they make an anonymous donation to a worthy cause. Now, she told me that I was happy for her, but my mind immediately went off on another track. I went, that's a really cool idea. We could do that at Westridge, right? So I started to research. It turns out there are groups like this all over the country. There, you search, do a Google search, and you'll find hundreds of groups that have borrowed the name and borrowed the idea and created their own group. You'll find you know, um, groups, a hundred doctors who care, a hundred teachers who care, a hundred men who care, a hundred women who care. Oddly enough, though, I didn't see one that was organized that was called a hundred lawyers who care. I'm not sure what that's about. My immediate reaction to this was, we can do this. So I've been kicking around the idea with the leadership team over the last year. I've been talking with Lisa, who leads our compassion ministries here. Uh, and just asking the question, can we, how can we do this? Because we get some pretty daunting benevolent requests in the course of the year. And by the grace of God and the generosity of a handful of people, we've been able to meet most of those over the last three or four years. There are very few people that I know in this church who, if they were presented with that level of need, could just sit down and write out a check for $10,000. All right, let me clarify. I could write a check for $10,000. It just wouldn't clear. And some of you are there with me, right? But I firmly believe that there are a lot of us who could give $100 four times a year. We could work together. We could gather $10,000 four times a year to help needy families at Westridge, who are in desperate need of help. So, we're launching it today. This morning, we're launching what we're calling 100 Who Care here at Westridge. My prayer in this is that we will, in short order, have 100 people who are willing to make this commitment. Four times a year, I'll give $100. Practice generosity. Offer hope and family, hope and help to families in our church and our sphere of influence. And I believe that together, we can accomplish something that none of us could do separately. If you're willing to be a part of this group this morning, here's what it means. So all we're asking you to do is up to four times a year, you're going to be notified that we have a need. And we'll ask you to either mail in a check or donate somehow through online or just hand us an envelope with $100. You can do more if you like. But the commitment is $100. $100. Your circumstances may change after you sign up, but in this moment, you're making that commitment. You're stating that's your intent. Now, I get it. People lose jobs. Circumstances change. Issues come up in your life. But what I'll caution you with at the beginning is these kinds of needs seldom come up when it's convenient. So sometimes we have to press through that and trust that God is going to meet our needs in addition to that one. So, Lisa... 
and the leader of the compassion team, Lisa Wallenberg, will contact the people in this group four times a year. We'll explain in some detail the needs that we're trying to help with without giving enough of that information that that person who's getting the help cannot remain anonymous. They will maintain their anonymity throughout. By the same token, this is not a public group. This is not something we're going to put the names up on the board and, and, and the stage and on the screen and go, look, these are the people who care. No, that's not what we're doing. The donors will remain anonymous. The recipients will remain anonymous in the church. We're just there to help. We're asking also this morning, if you want to do this, that you make it over and above whatever else you're doing in terms of charity and giving here at Westridge. Please, please, do not stop sponsoring a child in Nicaragua to do this. Don't stop giving to the general fund to do this. Over and above. This is about taking another step in practicing generosity. And when the needs come in, we'll vet those needs and make sure that they're valid, that we're not being duped, that we're not being hoodwinked by somebody who just wants money. And we'll keep everyone, all of this confidential, accountable to the leadership team, but confidential. Here's the thing. Lisa's been doing this for 10 years here. Her team has been vetting the requests that come in, making sure that we're making a wise investment and helping people beyond the money that they might need to get to a healthier way of life and get through the crisis. Let me just ask you one more thing about this, too. Don't read too much into the name. Like, it's not like we're saying, these are the hundred who care and the rest of you really don't. That's not what we're saying. It doesn't mean you don't care if you don't sign up. We don't do shame and guilt on a corporate level here, okay? We recognize that some of the most generous people in our church are people who live on a fixed income or a limited income. And they've driven a stake in the ground and said, look, generosity is going to be a consistent practice in our life. They've, they've said, look, whatever I have, whether it's a lot or a little, I will be generous and I'll trust God in this, and they give. So we're not like separating out who cares and who doesn't. We just wanted it to be something that was a memorable name. If you want to be a part of that hundred, my, my phone has lit up since first service. And I just, I want to cry when I think about it. How generous this church is. The challenge this morning is for you to consider being a part of the hundred who care. If you want to do that, you can sign up using the new text to connect that we introduced two weeks ago. It's really simple. The number's in the program. You're not going to have to scramble and write this down. It's 847-488-1761. And you just text, text the word, I care, and it will give you a link to sign up. You can spell it all caps, all lowercase, but we're calling it like iPhone. It's the lowercase I care. It doesn't matter when you text it. It'll still connect you, but it does have to be one word. You don't want to do that? Email. Email compassion at westridgechurch.net, and that will go right to Lisa, and she'll get you into that group and get you information. Or you can do it old school. You just actually, Lisa's right down here. She hates when I point her out. It's two weeks in a row. Um, you can talk to Lisa. You can talk to me. We'll put you on the list. Okay? You don't have to wait to be generous if you're technically challenged. You can still do this. This is one tangible step for us to take towards generosity. 
there is only one time in Scripture where God issues an I dare you to us. And it's all about generosity. It's in the book of Malachi. And, and God, through his prophet, is addressing the people and saying, look, you've been withholding. You've been grasping. You've been clutching what's there in life because of selfishness or fear or whatever the reason is. And through Malachi, God says to the people, I want you to give. In fact, he says, test me in this. I think if you go back and look at the original Hebrew, God says to them, I double dog dare you. Test me. And see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room to store it. I have loved this passage for years because God just boldly lays out the challenge. There's no qualifiers around it. You can test this generosity paradox with God, whether you're a new believer or not. Whether you're just investigating the claims of of Christ. You're new to Westridge or you just come here every once in a while. Test this paradox. Even if your finances, your personal finances are a wreck, start small. Test God and see how he opens the floodgates of heaven and blesses you. Maybe differently than the money you're giving away, but he will bless you. Don't wait till you have enough because you never will. Take a step. Put God to the test. Practice generosity in your life. Even if you just start with baby steps, do something. And watch God bless you. And as you practice generosity, keep your eyes open for the needs around you that God is going to raise. And as you practice generosity, keep your eyes open to the ways that God is bringing goodness and blessing into your life.